You're listening to Mastering Money, where we explore the many aspects of good financial decision-making. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. This season, we're looking at that four-letter word that so many of us know all too well, debt. Because understanding and managing debt is easier when you know your options and have the right guidance. My guest today is Guy Galatly, Chief Economic Advisor in the Analytical Studies Branch at Statistics Canada. Guy's research has focused primarily on business innovation and industrial dynamics. And since 2012, he has led the current analysis group at Statistics Canada. It provides information and analysis on current developments and emerging trends in Canada's economy. He also supports a range of quality assurance activities and analytical initiatives at the agency. Guy's here to give us a snapshot of household debt in Canada and walk us through what these numbers mean now and how they've changed our country over the course of the economic roller coaster ride that has been the last three years. Guy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doretta. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by just um, an explanation of what Statistics Canada is, what it does, and why is that important? Sure, Doretta, thank you. Um, Statistics Canada is the National Statistical Agency. So our role is uh, to produce the data, the information, the analysis that helps Canadians better understand their economy, their society, culture, environment. Many of your listeners will probably be familiar with the monthly and quarterly economic indicators, the major economic data that come out of the agency on a regular basis. So think uh, the consumer price index, uh, gross domestic product, the labor force survey, the merchandise trade numbers, all of that is really designed on an ongoing basis to allow people to get a sense of uh, kind of what their economy is doing, how it's performing. And that leads us to the uh, discussion of debt today. What are the limits on the kind of data that stats can gathers about Canadians? Well, it's a whole host of of data, and I'm I'm talking primarily about the economic side, but there's the social side as well. So, you know, you can think 350 uh, different survey programs here. The data give you that big aggregate snapshot of of how well the economy is doing or or social developments as they emerge. One of the standard challenges uh, with big numbers like that for Canada as a whole or for provinces as a whole It's a little bit trickier when you sort of get into more granular types of questions about, you know, particular types of households, for example. That's something that we've actually improved uh, pretty substantially over the course of the pandemic. We produce a lot more granular information now on sort of detailed financial conditions in different aspects of of the household sector for example. And we're always trying to improve that. Our labor force survey does that as well. You know, before it used to be just kind of the, you know, the big headline measures, but now there's a, a, a great deal of detail on, uh, on how employment conditions are evolving for specific groups of people. So that's the challenge. The challenge is always sort of timeliness and relevance. And, uh, and to make the data relevant, you've got to make it speak to very detailed groups of people. So the idea is that what you want to get a sense of is when people look at the data, can they see themselves in it or does it resonate as reflecting somehow their own reality? Exactly, exactly. And it's drawing the link between those sort of headline numbers and the lived experiences of people. That's really the challenge. And a lot of the analysis that we do in support of those headline numbers is geared towards that. 
Okay, so when we talk about household debt, how do you at Stats can define household debt and how do you measure it? Well, you can think of this in terms of total credit market debt. So the sum total of all mortgage loans, non-mortgage loans, including consumer credit, that all totals up to about uh, $2.8 trillion. So it's the stock of that debt. That's roughly uh, the size of our current dollar gross domestic product. Now, I should point out that it's, uh, it's actually much smaller than what you see on the asset side of the ledger. So total household assets in terms of financial assets and non-financial assets, that's about 18 trillion with a T. You take that and you subtract out the debt liabilities and you get a net worth for households at about 15.2 uh, trillion. So about $940,000 per household. Now here, uh, Doretta, is an example of one of those big averages. That's how many households here? Well, about 16.2 million households go into the creation of that average. And the question, of course, is, you know, what's the, what's the lived experience around those averages? Right. But so basically, if we put that at a household debt level, you would look at the total family assets, take away what they owe on those assets, and their net worth would be what's left mm -hmm. over. So right. if I look at my house, it's what my house is worth minus the debt or my mortgage is what my assets are in terms of the house. Yeah, and uh, in terms of the house, and then you'd add right. in the, uh, the financial the assets things. as well. Right. Okay, so big picture, how do you then define debt vulnerability? Because that's the stuff we worry about. When, how do people know when they're in trouble about debt? What does debt vulnerability mean when you're measuring that? It depends uh, really on um, uh, your ability to finance those debt levels, largely through current income flows. I mean, that's the standard way that, that people look at those big debt numbers. So you take a, a credit market debt to disposable income ratio, right? And uh, in Canada, in the second quarter, and I'll take you back to the second quarter because that's the numbers that are currently out there. Uh, that's when we wiped about a, nearly a trillion dollars off of the household balance sheet with those corrections in housing and in equity markets, right? So kind of a big, big decline in household wealth there took away about 25% of the household wealth that was uh, built up over the course of the pandemic. At that point, the, the, the debt to disposable income ratio, it's about a dollar and 82 cents of debt per dollar of disposable income, which is not widely dissimilar to what we saw in the run up to the pandemic in 2018 and 2019. But uh, certainly that's a number that has trended higher. It's trended higher since the 2008-2009 uh, recession. So that, that's the standard leverage ratio uh, that's often used to assess uh, financial vulnerability. And of course, it's going to vary dramatically across household types, depending right. on where you are in the life cycle and where you are in the country. So what would be then danger territory for people in being able to service their household debt? $1.82 for every dollar sounds a little crazy, except that when you build in people's assets and stuff, you realize that there's a lot of offsetting going on. I don't know, Doretta, if there's a magic number there that, uh, that kind of hits all of those warning signs. I think it depends on the stability of those income flows. So think about the denominator in that equation. Is it reasonable to, to expect that those income streams are going to be resilient given all of the uncertainty that's going on? It depends, obviously, as well on the liquidity of, of your assets on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the balance sheet as well. 
So again, we've always had reasonably high debt levels over the last few years in this country. And there's always been a question about the sustainability of those levels, but it very much does depend what's going on there in, in the real economy in terms of jobs and income growth and all of that. Right. So would you say that a lot of the decline is in assets is really this is what's happening with with because we saw this insane rise in housing prices and then the housing prices come down? Is that basically the driver of that number? It is. It is uh, largely the driver of that number. And you certainly saw that in different areas of the country. I mean, that was really the story. You know, if you go back to 2016 and 2017, all of the discussion of the housing market was really on Toronto and Vancouver. But, you know, with the pandemic, you know, those soaring housing prices were pretty much occurring everywhere. And that had a huge impact on, on household balance sheets, both in terms of kind of inflating the asset values and then what that meant in terms of debt. And the challenge now, of course, uh, getting back to your question on vulnerability is, you know, debt servicing costs are obviously uh, different now than they were at the start of the year. And, uh, and certainly all the mortgage-related costs now are, are higher. That's sort of the, uh, the key question in terms of, you know, are you getting close to a, a vulnerability point in terms of the ability of households to, you know, to, to meet those debt obligations. So can you give us a quick snapshot of the latest numbers? And you said, I think you're, we're looking at Q2, which would be April to June, end of June. The latest numbers for household debts in Canada. So if we're in a good place, um, if the numbers are concerning, um, how they compare to historical trends. Sure. $1.82 worth of debt per dollar of disposable income. That's probably on the reasonably high side. But again, those numbers have trended up over time and they have a lot to do with kind of what's going on in the housing market, as, as you pointed out. Not wildly different from kind of pre-pandemic, but certainly different to what we saw during the pandemic. And you mentioned that, you know, that was really a game changer. One thing you saw a lot of over the course of the pandemic was this, this idea of elevated income flows. You know, think of all of the money that's flowing into the household sector through the emergency support programs. Less spending there and, and more savings. And we saw a lot of debt being paid off during that period. Actually, a lot of high-risk debt, too. So, you know, it was a kind of a positive story in that sense, that there was certainly an adjustment on the balance sheet there, and, right. uh, and households were putting themselves, you know, in a more prudent financial position, particularly riskier households in terms of their, their debt characteristics. They dropped down to about $1.70, and now it is back up as, as things have ramped up, and as all that pent-up demand has, has come into play, we're seeing those debt levels return to their sort of historic levels. That's a really interesting point, though, about non-mortgage debt. We did see, we saw really high savings rates through the pandemic, and we saw people really making very wise decisions, paying down those consumer debt, credit cards, etc. Is that continuing? Are we starting to see savings rates drop significantly or consumer debt rising significantly? Well, we're starting to see the debt levels rise significantly. In many cases, they're not where they were prior to the pandemic. So credit card debt, for an example, would, you know, hasn't sort of fully rebounded to its levels. Overall, in terms of kind of debt levels, you are seeing kind of a households add to their, to their debt, you know, in, in certainly in the recent quarters, it was very strong. Uh, you know, it wasn't as strong as what we saw, you know, at some point in 2021, when that housing market was really on fire. But a lot of the growth is still on the mortgage side. And now we're seeing certainly some movement too on the non-mortgage side. So those are those are coming back as as, as households uh, spend. And the question, of course, is you know once that debt is on the books, what does that mean in terms of pressures and where service costs are going? 
And what about where we're seeing this geographically across the country? Are they region specific? We mentioned that, you know, it used to be it was Toronto, Vancouver, you really focused on for, for mortgage things, but it seems to be more generally across the country. Are we seeing regional or provincial differences? Are there any places where it's actually getting better in the country or? We are seeing some. It's, it's fascinating. If you look at the total amount of debt out there, you know, three quarters of it is going to be in Ontario, British Columbia and Alberta. You know, it's less than two thirds of the population, but a lot of the debt is out there. What you saw during the pandemic is sort of a sharp rise in kind of leverage ratios in places that, uh, you know, that have historically had kind of lower amounts of debt. So think, I'm from Manitoba, so think Manitoba and Saskatchewan, you know, think about the housing markets in those provinces and, you know, housing prices, there was clearly a lot of momentum there and you saw those leverage ratios rise. So they end the period now coming out of the pandemic at, at a much higher level than they were at the beginning. So there was a buildup in provinces where you necessarily, you didn't necessarily see buildups historically. Prince Edward Island would be a good example out on the East Coast, uh, a similar, pro- you know, lots of activity in the housing market and the economy generally there. So right. that's generally what you see. It's almost a situation where it'd be hard to say that they were getting better across the board. You know, some provinces are sort of similar to where they started pre-pandemic. Others like Manitoba and Saskatchewan are are much higher now. So what we saw in places in the country where through the pandemic, those real estate assets increased dramatically in value. Are they leveling and dropping faster than in the traditional high cost markets? I think there is generally a leveling there pretty much across the board, as I've seen it. You know, it it tends to be, you know, you've seen that gradual fade in momentum kind of across the country now as, uh, you know, given kind of what's gone on with housing prices really over the last seven or eight months. So yes, and of course, there's two sides to that equation. The second side is what's happening in terms of of financing costs and servicing costs, which are clearly rising. So, you know, the question on, on affordability depends upon the interplay of those two things. But clearly, the pocketbook pressures that uh, that families are under are, are quite real. And that seems to be true uh, across the country. We've asked questions on our labor force survey about the number of, uh, of families and households that are having difficulty kind of meeting the um, kind of the day-to-day expenses, you know, and it's about a third that are having uh you know, some or a lot of difficulty kind of meeting those. And that's higher than we certainly saw during the uh, the depths of the pandemic when the support programs were in place. And the issue is now, you know, what does that mean in terms of kind of where the inflation numbers are and, uh, and where the economy is uh, is likely to head? So lots of questions there. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into the latest StatsCant data, which is Q2. What were the most surprising things that you've seen in the data? It's a good question, you know, and I don't know if it's if it's a surprise. For those who who read our our, our releases, certainly around household income and, and debt, the one word that you saw a lot of over the course of the pandemic was elevated. You know, we had elevated income levels because of the emergency support programs. We had elevated levels of savings. You mentioned that, and they were in the double digit range for quite a few quarters there. So they're still relatively high, sort of as we come out of the pandemic. Lower spending because of obviously what was going on, and that led to kind of a sharp kind of reduction in the, in those debt liabilities. And now that they're building back up, you kind of get a different view. So maybe one of the surprising things that, that we saw, and it's not surprising over the course of the pandemic, was that income disparity and wealth disparity, that stuff started to narrow 
Uh, there was a huge reduction in the poverty rate, for example, in 2020. It was down to 6.4%. It was over 10 in 2019. So, you know, there was a lot going on in terms of kind of the, the redistribution uh, of income and wealth. And now as we emerge, uh, a lot of the historic patterns there are quickly rebalancing themselves. So, you know, you're seeing a widening of, of income inequality and wealth inequality. And we lost about 6% of net household worth in that second quarter. And uh, if you were a low income household, it was about 12%. If you were a younger household, it was just over 8%. So, you know, those historic patterns that you tend to see in those uh, income and wealth spreads are kind of rebalancing towards more historic norms. And that, that's something that, again, I don't know if that's a surprise, but it's, a, it's a certainly a notable development. So what about food prices? If we want to talk about inflation, that is one of the things where that it's everybody seems to be talking about it because it hits all of us and we see it week after week after week. How do you measure the impact of inflation? We know we have that basket, et cetera. How do you, mm -hmm. how do you measure that impact of inflation on food prices? And what does that have to teach Canadians? Well, you know, the inflation data, there's a, there's a rich amount of information there on kind of the key drivers of inflation. So over the last little while, you know, obviously there's the big swings in gas prices, but food costs and shelter costs have been kind of above the headline rate. I mean, food inflation is, uh, is still in the double digit range. We can all relate to that out in the grocery stores, right? In terms of right. Uh, the price changes that we've seen and just the, the sheer amount of uh, a price momentum there is on kind of grocery items and food. And that's and that's kind of the story. We've done some survey work that sort of tries to assess how families are dealing with those broad-based pressures uh, for things like food and, and for shelter. And, you know, there's about a quarter of families, and this was back in the in the spring before the inflation numbers peaked. They peaked in June at about 8.1%. Uh, so even then, you were seeing about a quarter of Canadians uh, kind of borrowing money from families or uh, using credit cards or taking on additional debt to meet those day-to-day -day expenses. So yes, you know, you, you mentioned the lived impacts. You certainly see them there, but you kind of have to get at them from other data sources as well. So yes, uh, the pressures are certainly there, and we continue to monitor that, certainly through the Labor Force Survey, and uh, we see the same thing, obviously, in recent months. Yeah, we saw it in our in CPA Canada survey as well, where you're starting to see concern, um, people expressing concerns about inflation. We've referred to it a couple of times, the COVID impact. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how at the macro level, we saw some really good things, um, savings levels going up, debt repayment, especially expensive consumer debt going down, even for the most vulnerable Canadians. We hear anecdotally about things like revenge spending. Does the data support that in any significant way? Do we have any little windows into that kind of spending? Revenge spending in what in what sense, uh, Dorena? It's kind of a social media term, really, but that people have had so much pent up not being able to spend that now they're out spending like crazy. That's what, what they call it. They call it revenge spending. Right, right. Uh, we certainly saw the pent up demand for a lot of those goods and services that we were not consuming uh, ramp up pretty substantially. And that started kind of halfway through 2021. So, you know, a lot of the economic recovery in those in that period was being driven off of uh, those types of services that we just weren't spending. So the net numbers, to some extent, are going to kind of follow that. That has started to taper off now, if you kind of uh, look at the more recent data. I mean, there was a lot of that, right? That just enthusiasm to get back out there in the world and do stuff. 
And that uh, accounted for a, a good chunk of, of kind of economic activity over that period. Now that's, that's tapering off, obviously, because cost conditions out there are changing. One of the things I'm wondering about, because you, you did mention that savings levels are still historically high, is it enough to buffer the impact of inflation? Or is this one of the things where you see different people being impacted in very different ways? And that maybe the people with the savings are the people who can afford to manage the increases in inflation and the bigger gaps at lower levels. Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably the latter. Different people are going to be affected in in very different ways, and that speaks to the just how much variability there is around those big headline household numbers, right? And in in some ways, the challenges are are going to be more on the extremes. It's hard to know at this stage, and we probably won't know for a little while. One of the stats that that I often went to during those periods of elevated savings, if you look at the amount of savings in 2020 and 2021 you add it up you basically have a decade's worth of saving on the household side so you know it's an enormous amount of currency and deposits that just kind of went into the household sector now as you pointed out a lot of that wasn't idle you know there were households were actively paying down uh, many of those riskier liabilities over that period and that's a very very encouraging sign but i've looked at some of those numbers the kind of cash and deposits are still fairly elevated there but it will be difficult to know how long until you start to run down that and uh, given where the affordability strains are uh, and given that they're all centered around in many cases you know things that we have to consume you know the food the shelter and the transportation plus all of the additional costs that might be rising in terms of the the housing market just your debt service costs across the board so there's all this cost pressure and there is this sort of uh, amount of savings sitting there and uh, it's a question of how of how those two kind of interact over time. And I don't think we have an answer to that quite yet, but it'll be a fascinating thing to look at and to, as we sort of get deeper and deeper into the recovery. Right. So what does the data tell us about how Canadians are coping with inflation? Was there anything in the data that surprised you? No, I think, uh, you know, people are going to cope as you would imagine they will, and they'll be making lots of substitutions at the margin to, to make things work. I mean, these sometimes are difficult to tease out of those uh, the big data, but, you know, people substituting a lot of durable spending because, you know, it's just too difficult right now in terms of the pocketbook uh, to be spending. In the big national account data for the third quarter, the big GDP numbers, you see sort of strong declines in, uh, in durable spending, you know, a pullback there on kind of, the, you know, the, the big ticket items. And that's what you'd expect, obviously, you know, as families kind of run into these financial challenges. We're seeing a, a fade in uh, in some of those, uh, you know, the discretionary things as well. You know, that you mentioned the revenge spending, kind of the ramp up as we all went out and, uh, and went back to restaurants and whatnot. And that those numbers have have certainly leveled off recently uh, because they might be obviously more discretionary in view of kind of what uh, what those pocketbook challenges are. So when you say decline in durable spending, in everyday language, durable spending oh, is? Big ticket items, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, think cars, uh, furniture, you know, stuff that tends to be a little bit more expensive that's there for a little while, so to speak. We tend to break it durable, semi-durable, and uh, non-durable. But uh, right. semi-durable would be like clothing and things like that. But durable, think, think those big ticket appliances and things of that sort. One of the things in the numbers that I have to say really surprised and made me very sad was the prescription drug spending numbers, where people are actually stretching out and not taking their prescriptions properly. 
Well, I mean, that just sort of speaks to the extent of the strains that many and the challenges that many families are facing. Sorry, I don't have those numbers in, in front of me, uh, Doretta, but it's that sort of substitution at the margin that you're seeing. And the, that just sort of reinforces the difficulty of those trade-offs for lots of families, right? right. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing not to go out as much, but that's a, a whole other magnitude in terms of financial and, and emotional pressure on families. There's no question there. And for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the statistical terminology, et cetera, when you talk about what's happening at the margins, you're really talking about the things people can do when they're right at the edge to try to pull themselves into a safe place. That's exactly right. The debt is interesting uh, in the sense that, you know, you're, you're looking at sort of the cumulative growth and all of those liabilities over time, but it's the it's the ability to kind of meet those obligations in the here and now that is the real challenge, obviously. So at margin, I'm, I'm using that term to basically describe kind of how they're adapting kind of in that in the here and now. So let's pull back for a while and just look at the kind of generational differences on debt load. We tend to see quite different pictures. We're hearing a lot of stress between, say, millennials and, you know, their whole kind of yes, boomer, what was true for you is not true for us and you don't understand, that kind of thing. Are younger generations taking on more or less debt than their parents and grandparents did when they were young? Is, is there really a significant difference? Short answer is yes, there is a significant difference. We looked at that actually pre-pandemic around a lot of the discussion of affordability that was happening in 2018 and 2019. And uh, if you do those intergenerational comparisons, like how do millennials compare to, to young Gen Xers or young baby boomers, there is a big difference in their leverage ratios. Now, the flip side is that they're also, uh, you know, they have higher asset values. And again, kind of think of, of, of housing and everything here too. So a higher net worth, higher asset values, but you're, you're more leveraged as well. And one of the statistics that I went to there was if you compare kind of those millennials to, to the younger, young Gen Xers, it'd be I think there'd be about 1.7 times more leveraged in terms of their debt to income. Uh, when you compare them to the young uh, boomers, it's about 2.7 times more. So, you know, yes, those debt holdings are, are different. The fascinating thing about that work when we did it is that if you look at the spread, it is much, you know, in terms of kind of high wealth millennials versus low wealth millennials. So you see that sort of spread in the previous generations, not nearly to the same extent. So if you're very well educated in a homeowner at a relatively young age in a particular market like Vancouver or Toronto, you know, on average, those, you know, you're much further ahead than relative to your counterparts than your parents or your grandparents may have been. So it's, it's an interesting story there. So is the spread between haves and have-nots, if you like, for mm -hmm. millennials, are you saying that it's wider than it was for it, baby boomers and uh, Gen wider. X? It is wired. Those higher leverage ratios mean you're more vulnerable to right. things like house, housing market downturns, right? Because, you know, at that stage of your life, you're you're relatively more invested in housing than, let's say, you know, financial markets. So, but yes, it is it is certainly a greater spread and uh, and you certainly might be a bit more vulnerable there. Interesting. And of course, there's also the student loan issue. I think that it seems to me that so many Gen Zs and, and millennials are dealing with student loan levels mm -hmm. that previous generations did not deal with mm -hmm. the same level. Yep. I don't have numbers in front of me to read it, but I, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. <laughs> I remember when I went to school and it was a different ballgame, obviously. Very different. 
Yeah, very different. I mean, I had student loans, but they were nothing compared to what young people have today. Right. Are there any significant patterns you're seeing today that seem to recall historical patterns and historical data? Well, it's funny. I, I talked earlier about this idea of rebalancing. Things were sort of shifting back to their kind of normal state uh, of affairs. Sometimes you have to be careful about those types of comparisons because you can't really talk about kind of debt loads and, and leveraging without talking about kind of what's going on in the economy generally, you know, and this gets at the sustainability of those numbers. Are you seeing the sorts of income growth and income generating opportunities that are going to allow you to be comfortable with those those debt levels over time? And, uh, and you know, it, it, think about when I say, okay, well, they don't look wildly different than 2018 and 2019 in terms of some of these leverage ratios. We're obviously interest rates in a very different place at that point. So we're in a different world now, both in terms of the inflationary pressures that we're experiencing and in terms of the uh, the debt servicing that's uh, the rises there that are you know, occurring in order to deal with those inflationary pressures. So it is hard to draw too much from those historical patterns without sort of getting a sense for what's going on out there right now uh, in terms of those other things. It's funny, though, I'm starting to see a number of articles that are talking about managing inflation and going back and looking for patterns through the 70s and 80s and how people managed inflation then when we know it was double-digit inflation and, and very mm -hmm. high levels. Do you think there are any learnings there or is it just too different now? Well, no, I think there's always basic learnings around the idea of being kind of financially prudent. I mean, that's it. I talk about these aggregate statistics, but I think we can all relate to income flows and uh, monthly costs and family budgets and uh, balance sheets. I mean, we all kind of have some variant of that. And I think we have all we all have some variant of a stress test in our minds in terms of what we would be able to absorb in terms of pressures. And I think there's, you know, those of us who went through that period, and uh, I was certainly one of them. My father was running small businesses in the early 80s. So I'm intimately familiar with the sorts of pressures that, that build up quickly on the margin to that, that the families have to address. And uh, keeping all of that sort of in mind is, is I think, absolutely critical. Yeah, there are lessons there. And uh, the lessons that, uh, that those costs and uh, can begin to escalate pretty, pretty quickly. So, you know, that's, that's the challenge for many families today. So I know none of us has a crystal ball, but does the data give us any kind of insights into what Canadians can expect over the next five years or so? Do you think that any historical pattern suggests that we're more or less likely to fall into more or less debt? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Boy, it's difficult to project five years out, given all that's gone on in the last three years. I think generally it will depend heavily on kind of where the housing market ultimately settles. All right. You know, we've gone through this really turbulent time now. Prices are, are coming down, selling prices, obviously, and, and the financing costs are up. So wherever that sort of ultimately settles is going to be about half the story and the other half is going to be do we see some real momentum in terms of income growth going forward and and that's the, that depends on kind of conditions broadly throughout the economy but that's uh, a critical factor i think in looking at the manageability of those debt loads thanks so much for joining us today guy the insight you've given us into canadian household debt is sure to give our listeners a broader perspective and help them understand debt and how it affects them You've been listening to Mastering Money from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. You can click to all the resources mentioned in this episode in the description for this podcast in your podcast app. 
please rate and review us. And if you'd like to get in touch, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. This season is proudly brought to you by BDO Debt Solutions, helping you turn the page on debt. Please note, the views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and not necessarily the views of CPA Canada. This is a recorded podcast. The information presented is current as of the date of recording. New and changing government legislation and programs may have come into effect since the recording date. Please seek additional professional advice or information before acting on any podcast information. Be well, be kind, and remember, managing debt is within your power when you're informed and prepared. Thank you.